There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and you're very welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast. Every week, this podcast will bring you a slice of current affairs you might find engaging and informative. We look at the big stories of the week and we also hope to delve into some of the off-agenda stories that we have featured in the Irish Examiner and give you our unique interpretation of those stories. Now, the whistleblower as a figure in society has come to the fore in recent years. Last week, we had a whistleblower from the prison service in this podcast. This week, the latest chapter of the Disclosures Tribunal is examining if Garda whistleblower Nick Kyo was targeted because he reported malpractice. Of course, an earlier chapter in that tribunal dealt with Morris McCabe, who I think it's fair to say is probably the best-known whistleblower in the country. Also earlier this week, the examiner reported on the Commission of Investigation into the case of Grace, the woman who suffered some awful abuse in care over a period of years. That case also came to the fore through a whistleblower, this time in the health service. And last Sunday, we saw the death of Tony Spallin. Mr Spallin wrote a highly critical and accurate report in his role as internal auditor of AIB in 1991 about bogus offshore accounts that was eventually leaked and led to a major Oireachtas investigation that saw the main banks stump up more than €100 million Euro in taxes. Now, Mr Spallin always said that he wasn't a whistleblower who leaked the report, but I think it's fair to say that by just writing that report at the time, and particularly the times that were in it, he demonstrated the characteristics of somebody who was trying to do something about corruption despite the personal cost to himself. On the international front at the moment, you just want to look across the Atlantic. Our old pal Donald Trump is the focus of an impeachment inquiry following a report from a whistleblower about his attempts to push Ukraine into investigating Joe Biden, who will be, of course, well, who's one potential opponent of his in the next presidential election. It's also fair to say that whistleblowers in one form or another have always been around, but in recent years, the role in uncovering corruption of one sort or another has been recognised by both the public and, crucially, in law. Yet, despite all that... There's an awful lot of evidence to suggest that those who do report corruption and malpractice still pay a high price for their decisions to do the right thing. Joining me today to discuss whistleblowers, corruption and related topics is John Devitt, Chief Executive of the Anti-Corruption Agency, Transparency International Ireland. John, you're very welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Mick. John, before we look at whistleblowing corruption in, in, through that lens. I just want to touch on a recent case that was in the news about the protection racket that was uncovered last week. This now was where two local criminals in West Dublin extracted money from construction firms and the firms themselves paid up after being advised to do so by council officials. Now we know that the activity was known to the Gardaí at the time but it would appear that little effort was put into investigating it, certainly until it came to public notice last week. You mentioned to me earlier that the case shows a weakness in the whole process of reporting wrongdoing. Yeah, we've had uh, encountered cases where, for example, someone has reported fraud, and this is a historic case now, someone has reported fraud uh, within 
the HSC or, or allegations of fraud to uh, the then Garda Bureau of Fraud Investigation and then claimed that the GBFI, the, the fraud squad, wouldn't investigate the, the case or his claims because the HSC, as a victim of the, the alleged fraud, hadn't reported the allegations themselves. And I get the sense, or I'm speculating here, that perhaps the council or the Department of Housing hadn't reported these concerns directly to the Gardaí, and that was the premise upon which they might have decided not to, 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 to take action. Now, again, I'm, I'm speculating here, but in our experience, in my own personal experience, I, I was uh, driving like my partner's car uh, one time and someone hit, drove into it, drove off, it was on camera, I reported it to the Gardaí, but they wouldn't take my report until my girlfriend went down to the station because it was her car. Even though you were the driver at the time? Yeah, yeah. And they had it on video. Now, I've, I've heard numerous cases like this in the past where the Gardaí will, will want the victim of the offence to call into the station to make the statement. Now, if, if you have a case where someone is reporting fraud or corruption in an institution, an institution itself is regarded as the victim, but is not taking action to, to deal with the crime, the fraud, corruption, uh, in, the, in the case of Cherry Orchard. Um, this is the case last week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then the Guardian are much less likely to investigate. Now, when we've confronted them over this, they have said that they will investigate irrespective of who reports. But in practice, our experience is that they will not open a formal investigation until the victim of the offence uh, makes the report themselves. So this might explain why there was such a long time before any action or investigation was opened. And say, if you, if you extrapolate that, John, say, for instance, you have a big organisation, say, for example, in the corporate world, and um, somebody comes forward, a whistleblower, mm. typically, in, and, and I know that there are some people who make reports like this and they don't even like the phrase whistleblower, but to be fair, it's just shorthand one way or the other. But supposing somebody comes forward and reports uh, fraud, within their organisation to the Gardaí. Hmm. What's the scenario then in terms of the process that the Gardaí use? Well, normally you, you, you can't report, under the Protective Disclosures Act, there's something called a step disclosure regime. We copy this from the UK. You're expected first to report internally to your employer. Um, if you're in the public service, you can report directly to the minister, to, to a government department. And they they may investigate or take it take the case up themselves. They rarely do. They usually pass it back to the public body that they're overseeing. Uh, you can then report it to a regulator if no action is taken by your employer, or you can go straight to the regulator if you believe that the the uh, the allegations will be covered up or evidence will be destroyed. Uh, and then ultimately, you can report to a journalist or a TD. Um, now. The problem is that the Gardaí are not a prescribed person for the purposes of reporting under the Protective well, Disclosures very, Act. That, oh, that's very interesting. And, and that means that if you if you see fraud, uh, if you see serious fraud, you're compelled to report it. There's a mandatory reporting obligation under the Criminal Justice Act, Section 19, to report directly to the fraud squad. But you're not protected under the Protective Disclosures that's Act. The point. So that serves as a, something of, of a deterrent. And we've been calling for some time now for, for the fraud squad itself to be considered a prescribed body. Because what it means, what the, the current situation means is 
that if if you report directly to the Gardaí... Can I just say, a prescribed, yeah. when you say prescribed body, what you're talking it's about a, is a body that's mandated to take a complaint exactly. of malpractice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, under the Protective Disclosures Act. And it should make clear that the Protective Disclosures Act offers much stronger protections against retaliation, reprisal, dis- uh, such as dismissal um, or, 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 or any other type of penalisation than the Criminal Justice Act does. Um, but you're not, as I said... Um, protected under the Act if you report straight to the Gardaí unless you have very good reason to do so. You're, you, you, you're, uh, it's, it's just as easy to report to a journalist as it is to report to a Gardaí. I mean, if you put that in context, okay, as you said, in, in terms of fraud, you're, you're obliged uh, to report that there's mandatory reporting. Yeah. But take another type of a crime in an organisation, for example, extreme sexual harassment yeah. or something of that nature or something that may look like a hate crime. Now, yeah. I know it's very skimpy legislation that area, but just, just take one of those. In the first instance, if you view this as criminal activity and you go to the Gardaí, you are not protected under the Protected Disclosures Act Unless you went through a, a, a specific yeah, unless you meet that. certain conditions under the Act, so you can report straight to your employer and be afforded all the rights and protections under the Act. Um, but if you report fraud to the Gardaí, you're not. You'll have to meet certain tests. You'll have to show, for example, that uh, you believe that you might suffer penalisation as a consequence of reporting internally. Uh, you'd have to also show that you exhausted or, uh, all uh, available uh, avenues through which you could report. So there are a number of steps you'd have to take or tests you'd have to meet under the legislation before you can avail of all the protections under the Act when reporting fraud to the Gardaí. So there is a, there is a deterrent there, um, or at least there isn't the same kind of incentive to report fraud uh, well, you see, it's very interesting from this point for, of view. For other offences. You mentioned Protected Disclosure Act. That came in in 2014. It was a long time in train. And I think it might be fair to say that this is around the time there was major controversy mm. over Morris McCabe in the Gardaí yeah. and he'd reported malpractice. Perhaps that affected uh, an urgency on it and it came through. That act was there Ever since that act was enacted, we have people at government level, mm. we have people within state agencies or within the corporate world saying, you know, that act is there now, whistleblowers protected by the law, come forward, report malpractice. My experience, John, is that whereas the law might be there, the practice of it is that people who do report malpractice get targeted one way or another mm. and the law is effectively being circumvented. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure the law is necessarily being circumvented. You have to be able to, you need to be ready to go to court or the Workplace Relations Commission to to, to avail of you. Yeah, so there there are very few um, obligations on employers currently to to be proactive in protecting their their, their workers or to stop reprisal. They're on the hook if legal action is taken against them. Uh, they, they something called under the act or uh, legal principle of vicarious liability. So an employer is liable for the behaviour of its, their, its own employees towards a whistleblower. So if you blow the whistle on your, your, your colleagues, bully you, make your life uncomfortable, then the employer is legally responsible for that and could could be sued. Uh, I, I know of one but, case, I know just yeah. one case, 
uh, the Workplace Relations Commission, uh, somebody in the prison service went there on the basis that he said he had been targeted because of reporting malpractice. He was awarded €30,000. Yeah. As I understand it, that's under appeal at the moment. Yeah. But that's very rare. And it also means that in that instance, and as you say in any other instance, you have to be prepared to go down an onerous legal route to yeah. vindicate your rights yeah, in that yeah. regard. And it, 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 it is, you're, you're taking a risk when you take action against your own employer for, for something like this. Um, you won't recover your costs through the WRC. It's a very expensive to take legal action to the high court. Uh, you'll, you'll be paying counsel six figures for, for, for to take an action. And then you're hoping that you'll be successful. So it is it is quite difficult. I mean, there's something called um, interim relief under the Act, which can prevent someone from dismissing you. And you can take that to the circuit court within three weeks of being served with notice of your dismissal. Um, but those protections are limited. What we've always argued is that, and international evidence backs this up, that the best protection you can offer anyone is to take action in response to the concern. Give us an example. So if, if uh, well, just to go back to, to the evidence that supports the, 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 the argument, um, our own survey data suggests, and data in the US and Australia suggests, that the, either the first or second most common reason people won't speak up in the first place is because of a fear that nothing will be done in response to the concern. So you can imagine someone like Eugene McElaine, um Formerly uh, worked from in AIB. AIB. And yeah. he, I mean, Eugene and Tony Spallin were the two most well-known so-called whistleblowers mm. of, of, of their time. And Eugene was doing much the same work that Tony Spallin was at AIB. He was the head of audit. But later, I think he was after. It was later, yeah. yeah and I can't, don't hold yeah. me to the day. It was early yeah, 2000s, was the 2000s, 2001, perhaps. I think yeah, it was. Then, yeah. um, and he uh, had uncovered numerous concerns reported to the bank and reported to the central bank, including around overcharging of customers, you remember. Um, central bank then, as I, as, as I can recall, re referred back to AIB, didn't take any enforcement action against them and uh, at the time. And uh, McLean was, was hung out to dry and eventually held... To, uh, was, was he blamed to by the central bank, yeah. and they referred the issue back to his employer. AIB, yeah. And uh, McElaine's complaint was, and his, his, it, it was a, there was a long-running dispute between McElaine and, and the central bank over the action, a lack of action thereof. But he was essentially exposed by the lack of action in response to the concerns he raised, and then was blamed, essentially blamed by AIB for the overcharging scandal. That's the old one. Having, having reported well, the concerns the in the first place. And there are numerous, I mean, just look so back just at Morrison Cape's case as well. If, yeah. if something of that nature was to happen today in the wake of the 2014 Protected Disclosures Act, would it have to be dealt with differently? Not necessarily. I mean, I think, yeah, I think the, the, the thing is a regulator could say, you know, there's not enough evidence to support the claim the guards can do the same, you know. Um, the regulators are under pressure. If you look at it from their perspective, um, and maybe I'm being overly kind to them, they they, they would say, "Well, we've we've hundreds of cases to deal with. We don't have the resources to deal with your complaint or to investigate it thoroughly." And they'll often refer it back to the employer to investigate. And in fairness to employers, they need to be able, to, and in fairness to the regulators too. 
they need to be sure that there's sufficient evidence to undertake what is going to be a really costly and lengthy investigation into a concern into a protected disclosure. So as often as not, they will refer them back. Um, but I think culture and, and expectations have changed of our regulators. You won't say, I doubt, and, and maybe again, I'm being sounding a little naive here, I, I doubt very much that you would have a similar case to McElane's now if if a complaint were made to the central because bank Because of the, the change in nature. Yeah, there, the there's been far are, more investment yeah. placed into enforcement. Uh, yeah. There's a reputation. I think they're much more aware of the reputational risk yeah. to themselves. No, as you, as you say, that, like, that, that the first fear is that nothing will be done. Yeah. I have to say, and this again is my experience dealing with various stories, it's also the case that those who do blow the whistle effectively, are subjected, some of it's insidious, some of it's hidden, they are subjected to still to some form of reprisal. There's, there's, always, there's always the risk there. Um, and um, I, uh, there's kind of 4D strategy or 5D strategy that employers will often use if they don't want to hear bad news. The first, well, the first they'll downplay the allegation. Then they'll deny it if confronted with it. Uh, if, if 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 the evidence is stacking up, they'll still they'll often deny or downplay. Then they seek to discredit uh, the, the 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 either the evidence or the person making the report, and they'll then seek to distract attention away from the concern. So we saw this uh, to some degree uh, when Morris McCabe was was reporting his concerns, how they used the 4D strategy to discredit McCabe's allegations downplay them initially, um, which then delayed, which is the fifth D, delayed the process in a hope or expectation perhaps that this would just die out, that media, the media would turn their attention somewhere else. Um, and then to distract by, by, I remember at the time, the GSOC bugging inquiry uh, or the, the scandal rose just on the foot of this, the allegations. This is a story that GSOC was being bugged and the suspicion yeah. is that it was being bugged by elements within Ungarda Chicago. So GSOC found itself under enormous scrutiny at the same time for no fault of its own, really. It was, it was a non-story. It was, it, the story was if you're, that they, they'd undertaken a sweep of their own offices to see that they weren't being bugged and it had been suggested at the time that senior officers in the Gardaí might be uh, bugging GSOC because of an investigation into collusion with a, 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 a drugs um, pusher or dealer. It was all speculation, and it, but it became a story in itself, which served then to distract attention away from the penalty points controversy. But in any case, um, the point is that um, the, the, this tactic is used and either consciously or unconsciously, it's not to suggest that there was any um, coordinated effort to, to, to employ this strategy, but it is one that's often used by employers to, to, to stop an investigation or to stop action being taken in its tracks. And uh, that subjects or exposes the whistleblower to, to, um, to, to, to far greater risk than uh, a, a disgruntled colleague uh, who might make a, you know, is, uh, might might give someone a hard time. Uh, but isn't, want to isn't, sit isn't with that the, the key canteen. to it, John? And again, I've spoken to a number of people in different fields. I was actually speaking to somebody 
last week in relation to uh, service that this person performed in relation to exposing something that was going on within the health service. And this person said to me that if she had her time over again, she would not report it, irrespective of the fact that she exposed huge wrongdoing. Now, that is not the first person to say it. A number of other people have said ex- who, who, who came forward and reported have said to me, if I had my time over again, would I do it? No. Including Morris McCabe said it at one stage. That raises the question, why would anybody become a whistleblower? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think Morris McCabe's and the, the, those cases that you're aware of are usually in extremists. They, 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 they're, the, they're well known because they're so dramatic, um, that because people like Morris have suffered so much. Uh, our survey data actually suggests that the majority of people that do technically blow the whistle don't suffer as a consequence. That less than 30% of people who, who responded to our survey um, in 2016 said they, they, they suffered uh, as a result. And in fact, more people said that they had benefited from the experience of sharing information about wrongdoing to their employer uh, than, than, than suffered. Uh, the, the, the remainder said it made no difference to their career at all. And far more people technically blow the whistle than uh, people who become known or self-identify right. as whistleblowers. And the term whistleblower is used generally to describe someone who's, who's reported wrongdoing uh, taking place at work, uh, but either comes up against the, the, the employer's resistance to taking action against it or suffers as a consequence. And we've been arguing that there's a reputational risk for everyone if the person who's reporting the concern suffers. Uh, because if, if they, they then self-identify as a whistleblower or they're identified outside as a whistleblower, um, the, it, it escalates the, the, the issue is, isn't that to, what to a degree that, does, a that is unnecessary. There's a natural instinct by those who are overseeing organisations, like, you know, putting forward the logic of what you're saying, yeah. if you respond positively to this whistleblower, ultimately it'll enhance the organisation. But those at the top often view it through the personal lens that if this is a reflection in the organisation, it reflects on them personally badly and therefore let's try and, as you say, employ the five Ds or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's, I think there's a growing realisation now that there, there is a, in many ways, as you touched upon, there's a reputational dividend to be had by treating a whistleblower well. And I think it covers some credit, um, former Garda Commissioner, Noreen O'Sullivan understood this uh, when she she uh, took Morris McCabe in and promoted him to the head of Garda Traffic Division, invited him in to help investigate concerns. I think it was in 2015 that were continuing to 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 be uh, yeah. to be raised about the 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 the, 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 the pulse the management of the pulse database. Now, what happened then afterwards? Is another story another entirely. Story, but, yeah, I take but, your point. But the point is, I think Guardian and Guardian and the current commissioner understands the need to to nip any mistreatment or maltreatment of whistleblowers in the board. Now, when a force of sixteen thousand people, that's going to be enormously difficult, and it takes an awful long time to change culture and attitudes, and to introduce the systems and procedures to make something uh, to, to 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 
make sure that people feel safe and speak up. We've been running a program called Integrity at Work, Transparency International, for uh, a couple of years now. And we have 26 uh, employers involved in, in the initiative aimed at creating safer workplaces for, for whistleblowers. And the Guardian, the Department of Justice, are involved in this. And we're, we're looking to roll this out within uh, the Guardian over the next year or so. Uh, but the aim of that, of that will be to make sure that Gardaí and civilian staff understand that there'll be zero tolerance of any mistreatment or maltreatment of, of, of anyone who speaks up or does the right thing, that they'll be able to seek support and advice from us or any other um, advisor. And, the and that action, the most important thing is that action will be taken. Now, that, that, that it involves a much bigger piece of work because that also involves legislative change. It would need uh, stronger powers for whatever, repla- whatever agency replaces GSOC. Um, and it also required resourcing for internal investigations of corruption as well. Um, you're aware that there's a new anti-corruption unit. I was going to ask you about that. As well. There's a new anti-corruption unit yeah. in the Gardaí, and there's been some criticism I saw in the media in relation to the fact that, irrespective of okay, this is focusing on corruption as being an issue within the force. Not that the Gardaí is different from any other organisation, but purely the, the the power that's vested in them, that uh, there would be corruption there. Um, but the, the the corollary of that is you're back to guards investigating guards. Is that a good idea? The related topic there is what is corruption? What you and me might regard as corruption may not be regarded by, for example, certain people within large organisation, be it banking, be it law enforcement, be it elements of the public sector. Equally, what I might regard, for example, as morally acceptable within my line of work, mm. others might say, well, I wouldn't think that. Do you know what I mean? There's a sectoral aspect to that and whether it's a good idea then to have internal agents investigating that, you'd have to question that, I'd say. Yeah, well, I mean, to start with your last question first, corruption is defined broadly and, and then it can be defined, it's subjective and nebulous, quite an abstract noun. Yeah. Um, but also it's defined under legislation here on the Criminal Justice um, Corruption Offences Act 2018. So there are specific offences related to bribery and, and so on, uh, trading and influence that are are actionable um, under under legislation. But there's a lot of low-level stuff that wouldn't necessarily come under Which the has been captured by, yeah, in the past it was captured by um, the Garda Malpractice uh, regulations, reporting regulations, I think from 2007, and there was a list of types of corrupt behaviour in inverted commas that Gardaí were encouraged to report. And I remember at the time looking at this with Morris, when we were, we were supporting Morris. Uh, Morris McCabe. Morris McCabe, yes. And, and, and uh, it was clear to me that he had grounds to report under those regs uh, because the, the term corruption was, was defined very broadly within the Gardaí. Uh, and it was clear that no type of malpractice would be tolerated under the regulations. Now, the, what happened thereafter, again, is another story. Uh, but uh, police forces around the world understand that, you, that and they take a, the broken a window strategy that I think Rudy Giuliani took in, the, in New York yeah, in the people, 80s, yeah. Yeah, which was to, to take a zero tolerance to any type of crime any type yeah. of malpractice and my understanding is that this anti-corruption unit would investigate in some cases more trivial right. type of uh, types of, of offence but they'd be more likely to undertake investigations and proactive intelligence led policing 
against more serious types of corruption, including collusion with you know drug gangs or serious investment, like, yeah, yeah, solicitation, yeah. racketeering, and that kind of thing. But we have to understand is that we only have one police force here, one police service, unlike the UK, which has 45, or the US, which has thousands of law enforcement agencies. We don't have a federal uh, law enforcement agency like the, the UK or the US. And because of that, we, we can't refer these investigations out to anyone other than GSOC. Now, GSOC is a relatively small agency and is not equipped with either the, the resources or the manpower or the staff to undertake this intelligence-led policing. It will react to concerns. It will take complaints. But you also need investigators who know law enforcement. And in our case, they're guards. And if you're going to plant an undercover officer to Mm -hmm. investigate or expose a suspect who's, they may think is, is, you know, importing cocaine through, you know, Ross Lair or whatever, then uh, you're going to need to plant someone there to keep an eye on them. And the only people you can plant our guards. Yeah, that's the nature of it. That's the nature uh, of it. I think if we, if, if, we, if we don't trust our own police service to police itself, then we're in serious trouble. Now, that, that said, while, while you might want to trust, you'll also want to verify. And that's why we need a strong oversight agency to ensure that those investigations are, 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 are by the book and as well. Uh, and uh, that mo- the most senior officers who... Uh, might be accused of malpractice can be investigated too. So GSOC should be given powers to investigate the Garda Commissioner without having to jump over too many hurdles and should also be able to uh, investigate uh, or, or to, to seize documents from a Garda station Absolutely. and so on. Can, can I bring to, it back, back John, to just briefly to, to your own agency? And yeah. the nature of yours is that people who are whistleblowers, I'm assuming a number of them, on the basis, all they do is a Google shit search and they look up transparency and they mm. see what you're involved in. Yeah. Do you get contacted by a lot of people who are either thinking of or who have reported malpractice and are looking for advice? Yeah, so we, we, we launched a helpline in 2011, uh, Speak Up Helpline, and we've supported around 1,300 people so far, including Morris McCabe. About a third of those would be making protected disclosures. Others would be, you know, making a complaint about a guard. They might be mistreated or, you know, they might have had issues with their local authority. And we offer an information referral service for, for most of those people. Uh, we also set up a law centre, an independent law centre, Transparency Legal Advice Centre, which provides specialist advice around protective disclosures and our helpline will triage those cases much the same way as a, an A&E. And, and, and in your experience, and then, those who make protective disclosures, yeah. are they relatively secure or happy in their decisions or do you find some who, who, who are who find it onerous? We have to, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing, it's too early to say, to be honest, because this process can be quite long. So it could take a year or two, even longer for for someone to come out the other side. And it's very difficult then to follow up with them if they don't call us back. Um, but I, I think the experiences, as I suggested earlier, for most whistleblowers are mixed. I mean, one third will suffer, one third will, will not, won't notice much difference. And the others might actually be thanked by their employer for raising concern, particularly if it saves the employer money. Um, so it's very difficult to say. But the most important thing is that 
people feel comfortable in speaking up and that they're able to make an informed decision before they do because we found those cases where people have suffered the most or where they've they've rushed into making a complaint or making a disclosure without thinking it through without understanding that they may be making allegations that can't won't stand up that could be defaming a colleague um they may be reporting to the wrong agency do you ever come across vexatious Oh, yeah, you come across uh, quite a few, yeah. And very often they'd be mixed in with a genuine complaint. Are are people who are using the act to follow an agenda? Uh, It's very difficult to to tell. We're not psychologists, so we we can't read into people's minds. And we always encourage people to avoid testing or or, or trying to scrutinise the motive of someone coming forward. Now, an investigator will normally have to do that to test the credibility of, of someone. But an employer should take uh, someone at their uh, face value when when initially assessing the concern. You assess the concern and then you investigate it. uh, And then ensuring that they don't suffer as a consequence, irrespective of of their motive. Now, if you make a a knowingly false report, then you should have the book thrown at you. And you are subject to a range of sanctions, including the dismissal. You make a knowingly false report to the guards. You could be prosecuted. You could find yourself in front of a judge. Sorry, in an instance like that, would it be difficult to prove that it was knowingly? It's a really tough, tough test to 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 meet for 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 prosecution or for a plaintiff. Uh, But uh, you know, there have been cases. I remember. um, I mean, Louis Walsh was accused. If you remember. Um, of of, uh, sexual uh, assault, and he rightly took. I think was. It was the Sun newspaper, the Irish Sun. It was one of the tabloids. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I'm getting a lot of people trouble. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it was, it was <laughs> one of the tabloids. I don't remember which stuff. Don't remember which tabloid it was, uh, but it, it was a but, completely vexatious, yeah, and malicious. Yeah. And and the guy who accused them was also prosecuted. That's right. Yeah, yeah. he eventually was prosecuted. So I mean, so. there, are, I mean, there are cases where people have made false reports, and the same way people make false reports of rape and of, of of sexual assault, but you it, that. Very leaving small that number, aside, yeah. But, yeah, but you need to leave that to one side yeah, and, and, to. and judge the, 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 the allegations on their own merits. Take the person um, at face value and investigate, look at the facts rather than the person sharing them or uh, testing the, 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 the state of mind of the person don't, bringing them forward. Don't, don't, whatever you do, don't shoot the messengers. I think exactly. I'd be, I'd be very yeah, much yeah. in favour yeah, of that. Focus on the message instead. Absolutely. Yeah. John, as an insight into that whole area, and as we, as we said, it is a vital aspect of uncovering corruption and wrongdoing, the role of the whistleblower. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mick. John Devon. And sorry, can I just yeah. say that if anyone wants to call our helpline, uh, they can get us on free phone, 1-800-844-866. Uh, or get us through our website uh, with a, a link uh, a make available, which is speakup.ie. one 800 That's it, yeah. John Devitt, Chief Executive of Transparency Ireland, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I'd also like to thank producer Declan Conlon and JJ Vernon and Sound. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify, and you can let me know what you think of the podcast at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on the Twitter machine at at Cliff. See you again, folks.
On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.